Hello, I'm your host, Larry Bennett, and you're listening to the Future of Publishing podcast series. This series is brought to you by Norcompo, a leader in typesetting and digital services for 50 years in collaboration with Publishers Weekly. Production is provided by BookBuddy Media, a leading supplier of audiobook services. This series gives listeners a wide range of perspectives by industry leaders who share their experiences and who enlighten us on their vision of the future of publishing. So, let's get started. Good morning. I'm Larry Bennett, your host of the Future of Publishing podcast series, and I'm here in Los Gatos, California, um, where our guest today are, will be Mark Coker. Uh, Mark Coker has been an author, a publicist, and an angel investor. He founded Smashwords in 2008, and since that time, Smashwords has become the world's largest distributor of indie ebooks with over 475,000 titles published to date. Smashwords has been profitable since 2010, which allows Mark to focus his attention on creating ever more effective tools for Smashwords, Smashwords author clients without pressure from short term outside influences. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. Mark, can you tell us how you manage that prodigious feat of um, being profitable without uh, without the need for venture funds? Well, it, it hasn't been easy, but I'm a big believer in bootstrapping. For the first, you know, two and a half years of Smashwords, it was just myself and one other developer, and I did everything other than the programming. We just, you know, we operated the business lean. We focused on, you know, what our what our authors needed, what the readers wanted, and focused on extreme efficiency and building a self-serve platform so that any writer anywhere in the world could self-publish an ebook for free. And then as soon as we hit profitability, we started hiring. So today we're about 17 employees. Uh, and and it, it, I am grateful that we never brought in outside investors. But I can tell you it's tough. In this business, it's tough to, to make a profit. Sure. Well, 10 years ago, when you founded Smashwords, in your own words, you were trying to enable all writers to self-publish to, as you call it, democratize publishing. You wrote that writers should have the freedom to publish what they want, and readers should have the freedom to decide what's worth reading. Today, you've built Smashwords into the number one digital content platform for indie publishers, uh, just curious, those self-publishers generate the lion's share of new titles by a lot, but they're kind of under-indexed in terms of sales. So, Mark, do you anticipate continued growth in the title count, which has reached about 750000 per year, and will self-publishers be able to grow their share of sales? I think if you look at the data that is available, um, what you see is that 10 years ago, self-published authors had basically 0% of the trade book market. Uh, they weren't selling. But thanks to the advent of ebooks, thanks to the advent of democratized distribution, where we had, you know, starting nine, 10 years ago, major retailers uh, taking on uh, self-published ebooks uh, into their stores, what we saw is that, that the indie authors, these self-published authors, started capturing market share on the ebook side. And so today, um, Depending on the, the, the genre or category, indie authors control up to 50% or more of certain genres. Like in the romance category, indie authors completely dominate. 
if you look across the aggregate, um, you know, at some stores, it's, you know, indie authors are probably accounting for about 25% of the unit volume in those stores for, for, for ebooks. And so I don't know what the, the overall market share is today for indie authors on the ebook side, but what I do know is that over the last 10 years, that market share has been trending up. And the unit sales um, really are, are, are much higher than the overall dollar sales. So when you look at the overall dollar sales and the impact of indie authors, it really understates the impact that these indie authors are having. When I look at, you know, when we're talking about the future of publishing, I think we really need to look at where the reader eyeballs are going. And the indie authors are doing a fantastic job of serving the, the, the interests and needs of readers. So I think that trend is going to continue. And will Smashwords uh, play a role in making that trend continue, do you think? Well, well, certainly. Uh, I, I expect we will because as a, a, an ebook publishing platform, we're the on-ramp for every writer in the world to publish an ebook and allow that ebook to be distributed globally and be judged directly by readers. So in this new world, readers are the gatekeepers. When I, when I started Smashwords 10 years ago, it was a completely different world. Traditional publishers controlled access to the printing press. They controlled access to retail distribution. They decided which books were published. They decided what readers could read. They decided which writers could graduate to become published authors. And that system worked really well for centuries, but you know, I came to a conclusion 10 years ago, just based on my personal experience, that in the end, um, that system was antiquated and was doing a disservice to book culture because there are many more books that were being written every year that would never see the light of day. And, you know, I think about the hundreds of thousands of books that have, you know, gone to the grave with the author unpublished. And you know, we know, that many of those books would have gone on to become cultural classics if only given a chance to be judged by readers. But the, the challenge that I saw 10 years ago was that publishers were unable to say yes to every author. They were unable to invest in every author. And, and because they're running a business and they need to be profitable, the publishers are focused on books that are going to sell the most copies, that, are the, the, that have the greatest commercial potential. But I think that's the wrong way to value books to humanity. Uh, you can't just value books on you know, perceived commercial merit. Well, you've certainly given a lot of uh, authors an opportunity. Roughly how many authors uh, have published through uh, Smashwords? Oh, over 100,000. Wow, that, that, that's great. So, and you mentioned, Mark, that um, romance uh, books in particular, uh, the indie authors have had uh, an outsized market share. Uh, is there something particular about that genre uh, that's not applicable to other genres of books? Well, yeah, there are multiple things that are really interesting. So, you know, the, the romance novels have always been like the, the Rodney Dangerfield of publishing. You know, people kind of snicker. They, they, they don't think, you know, the, the industry and even people outside the industry tend to look down upon romance novels, look down upon romance readers. Um, bookstores don't give romance novels a lot of a lot of shelf space. 
and, and what we saw with the advent of uh, the rise of ebooks and the democratized distribution of these self-published romance authors is that there was this latent demand that wasn't being met by traditional bookstores for romance. And, and it was the romance authors who saw the first commercial success in self-publishing. They were, they were self-publishing books that had previously been traditionally published, and then the rights reverted to the author. So the publishers basically said, look, here's your book back. We've exploited its commercial value. It's worthless to us now. You can have this worthless book back. And so the authors self-published them and they, at 99 cents, 2.99, 3.99, and within months, many of these high-quality writers were earning more every single month than they had earned over their entire publishing contract with the publisher. And so that, that, that's one aspect. Another aspect is that romance readers are the most amazing readers in the world. These are the readers that will read a book a day. A book a day. A book a day. And, and then the romance authors, these authors are underappreciated. These authors aren't, they, they don't fit the stereotype, the negative stereotype that, that people had of romance writers and of romance novels. These writers are smart businesswomen. They're the smartest people in this industry. They're lawyers, accountants. They come from you know all professional fields, and they're writing books for women about human relationships, and 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 they've been the first to adopt best practices, traditional publishing best practices, and they've been the first to pioneer the new best practices of digital digital marketing. And so, uh, you know, I look at at romance authors as the tip of the spear of what the future is going to look like. And it's really interesting, you know, when I when I talk with traditional publishers, um, traditional publishers are really questioning their commitment to romance. I had one publisher tell me, I don't see how we can make money selling $1.99 ebooks. And, you know, you know, so, so, and I've heard that from more than one publisher. Fascinating. Well, you mentioned traditional publishers, Mark. You know, I, my own experience, I've seen how traditional publishers have made some major forays into self-publishing, uh, notably Penguin's acquisition of Author Solutions, which they sold after a few, I guess, disastrous years. So why do you think that the traditional publishers have failed in this area where you've been very successful? And do you think there's an opportunity for them in the future to work more effectively with the indie author community? Yeah, so, you know, why did they fail? Um, it, it, it was mind-boggling when, when Penguin and Pearson Penguin uh, took ownership of Author Solutions. Author Solutions is a parasitic company. They earn their income selling overpriced services selling books to authors. They don't earn their income like the best of traditional publishers selling books to readers. So Author Solutions' interest is not aligned with the interest of the authors. They basically exploit uh, new authors that, are, that, that, are, that don't understand the publishing industry. They offer to publish them. They, they characterize themselves as a publisher and and these authors who can't find any other way to market, who don't understand the industry, they, they think, oh, wow, this company wants to publish me. I found a publisher. But these authors are just screwed and exploited. And 
Author Solutions, their, their reputation was well known before Pearson Penguin acquired them. And, and I was just shocked and disappointed when that, that transaction happened because if that's how traditional publishers thought that they could make money in self-publishing, it went against all the best of the best publishers in years prior. Because great publishers invest in authors. Great publishers make the money flow from readers to publishers to writers. It doesn't flow the other way around. And, and so that was really disappointing. And then it was even more disappointing to see other uh, quality publishers uh, get in bed with Author Solutions and start you know, offering these pseudo imprints uh, that were all just designed to exploit the, the, the dreams of writers. They weren't designed to sell books. And, and so that, that was mind boggling. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that that failed. And, and as I wrote at the time, I was also concerned that this move was going to tarnish publishers' reputation with writers. Because you look at a self-published author, when they first get started in publishing, they don't know the ropes. But very quickly, you know, within a year, these, these writers are talking with one another. They, they know that companies like Author Solutions are, you know, the, the parasites. And then they look at the traditional publishers who they once respected, and they, they think, if these publishers can get in bed and screw authors like that, it just confirms all the worst fears that I've heard, all the worst criticisms I've heard about publishers, that they don't care about writers, that they're exploiting us, they don't pay us enough. And that's unfortunate to see the, the publishing industry's reputation with the author community tarnished so badly. And this was a self-inflicted wound. Um, I, was, I was encouraged uh, to see Macmillan acquire Pronoun, because Pronoun was an author-friendly self-publishing service. But it was an author-friendly publishing service that didn't have a business model. And I was disappointed to see that Macmillan didn't you know, make the investment necessary to make that work. They closed that down last year. So now we've got these, you know, we've got, you know, traditional publishers who might even feel burned by self-publishing, who have less respect for self-publishing than they did previously. And you've got this indie author community that's looking at publishers and thinking, hmm, maybe all those bad stories I heard about traditional publishers are true. Maybe I, I should not aspire to be traditionally published. You know, my view, um, even though I'm a huge supporter of self-publishing, is that traditional publishers are essential to the future of this industry. Uh, traditional publishers can add a lot of value to publishing. And, and traditional publishers create exciting opportunities for writers, more choices for publication. But it, we're facing this unfortunate situation now where uh, writers are starting to turn their backs on publishers. Writers are publishing, are, are starting to aspire to self-publish as, as opposed to aspiring to traditionally publish. We're seeing those, the, that shift because, you know, 10 years ago, no one aspired to self-publish. Self-publishing was seen as the option of last resort. It was seen as the option of, for failed The vanity writers. press. It was seen as vanity. And, 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 but th those attitudes have changed because what we saw very early on, and it's again, it's thanks to ebooks and it's thanks to the retailers yeah. opening up their stores to the self print on demand. Yeah, and print on demand helped as well. So once what we found is that once these self-published books were put in front of customers, in front of readers, that readers loved them. 
readers started buying them and they became commercial successes. And as each indie author achieved commercial success, it inspired other indie authors and helped other indie authors recognize, helped other writers recognize that yes, you can self-publish with pride, professionalism, and commercial success. So we've seen the stigma evaporating uh, for self-publishing while the stigma for traditional publishing has been increasing. And and I'm not happy about that. I'm happy about the stigma for self-publishing disappearing, but I'm not happy about the increasing stigma for traditional publishers. Sure. We've got these two worlds that aren't working together that don't understand one another. Sure. We've even seen the names change from Vanity Press to hybrid publishers. <laughs> Um, again, taking away that stigma. But you know, we started this discussion talking about the traditional publishers. Do you see any possibility or any anything on the horizon to make you think that they're not just going to let this whole market go to Amazon and Smashwords? I, I, I have not seen the publishers take the steps that they need to defend their businesses and to grow their businesses for the future. So let, let's, I mean, let's look at what's happening for the publishers. You've got the publishers that look at um, self-publishing as, you know, more of a curiosity than anything else. Their involvement with self-publishing is to basically follow the, the bestseller lists and try to pick off and acquire the books that prove commercial success. Right. Publishers practice a culture of no. They're rejecting most of the available books. They're, they're saying no to most of the authors who want to work with them. Mm -hmm. So they're pushing those authors into the arms of Smashwords and Amazon. Amazon operates a self-publishing platform just like Smashwords. So what that means is that Smashwords and Amazon are getting first dibs on these authors that the publishers have rejected some small percentage of these authors are going to go on to become commercial successes. What Amazon does is they, they since they've got early access to these new authors, they can see which books, um, they can see which writers are the quality writers based on how their customers are responding. And then they can offer these, these writers uh, traditional publishing deals, um, offer them exclusivity, offer them incentives to to get closer to the Amazon ecosystem. And so what's happening is Amazon is separating writers from publishers. And this is key, you know, this is key to Amazon's long-term publishing strategy. They've made self-publishing the centerpiece of their long-term publishing strategy. And what that means is that, um, you know, publishers are going to start losing access to this tremendous pipeline of high-quality writers, writers who aren't even going to shop their books to agents or publishers. Amazon's going to uh, form that relationship first. Publishers don't have a solution for that. You know, when I when I look at the opportunity for publishers, I see I see publishing services as a spectrum, and I think publishers need to think of themselves as service providers to authors. This is a radical idea because historically, you know, authors they've they've treated authors as service providers to them. Sure. And and if publishers can adopt this different mindset where they are a service provider to authors and and the, and publishers deserve to be proud of the high quality full services that they provide to a, an author. Uh, the, the opportunity for authors for publishers is to offer a spectrum of publishing services. So you've got the full serve, which is what publishers do now. And then there's low serve or the do it yourself, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum. That's where Smashwords and and um, 
and Amazon operate. It, it, and you've seen Ingram go into it as well. Yeah, kind Ingram's of in it. A void that, uh, right. as you mentioned, Mark, traditional publishers just seem reluctant so to it, do. Yeah. And so between these two extremes of the spectrum, you've got full serve and self serve. In the middle, there are lots of opportunities for publishers to offer different types of services. Sure. So I think every every traditional publisher should be operating a self-publishing platform uh, where you can self-serve, self-publish an ebook, and you can be connected to that publisher that you want to be connected with. And then the publisher will have access to the author's sales and performance and then can offer them, offer to graduate them up to higher service levels. Uh, you know, offer to the author, look, um, we, we'd like to take your digital book and make it available for print distribution. And these are, this is what the terms are, and this is, these are the rights that you give up. And so the author's in control of the situation, but the publisher's in control of that relationship. Um, th so I think, I think that's key to the, the, the future of publishers, but it's going to require a mindset and we, uh, change. Only time will tell, but um, l let's talk a little bit about formats. You know, 20 years ago, there was one format. It was called a print book. Mm -hmm. Now we have sort of three formats, if you will, with ebooks and audiobooks. Um, you know, seven to 10 years ago, the industry pundits were predicting the demise of the printed book as we know it, or at least it's becoming a minority share behind ebooks. We've seen ebooks plateau in general in the mid 20s or even a little lower and lower in most other countries outside the US. At the same time, the rapid growth of audiobooks has surprised just about everybody. So how do you see, Mark, the evolution of the various formats over the next three to five years? Do you have your crystal ball with you? Yeah, yeah it's, it's always with me. Sometimes it's foggy. <laughs> well, you know, I was never one of those people that thought that, that, that digital would, would replace print. But I, but I do believe that digital will continue to eat into print. And when we look at these numbers, and, and certainly the, the ebook market has, has leveled out and plateaued, and in some instances uh, decreased, when we look at those numbers, those numbers are based on dollar sales typically. Right. And that you know, we've got to remember that ebooks are priced dramatically lower than print books, and prices for ebooks have been coming down. Um, what we really need to be looking at is unit volume, and I think when you look at it on a unit volume basis, uh, ebooks are still eating into print share. But uh, you know we are at this equilibrium, and I think this is a healthy equilibrium where readers have these different uh, choices of formats. So ebooks will continue, print will continue, and now we've got the audiobook uh, segment that's growing really quickly. I think one of the key drivers of audiobooks is that audiobooks create more time in the day for the reader to enjoy books. You can enjoy books now in places that you couldn't enjoy them before, in the car, uh, while you're gardening, while you're on a hike. Uh, and, and, and so that, that's positive to me in, in, on a number of levels. Um, it shows that, that, that consumers want books, need books, and are looking for opportunities to, to read more books. That's good. Well, you know, let's let's now, let's talk about audiobooks a little bit because it's been just such phenomenal growth. Um, according to the industry statistics I've seen, there's been tenfold growth in title production since 2010, reaching, according to the APA, the uh, association, no, the Audiobook Publishers Association, it's 79,000 titles. Uh, in 2017, that's out of about 250,000 that the traditional publishers publish, or a million titles overall if you include the indies. So, 
you know, uh, and Smashworks, I did what I thought was a great move and enabled audiobook production and distribution for client authors in March of this year, 2018. But, you know, audiobook production can be expensive no matter what you do. It's, there's no, you can't automate it, assuming you want a professional narrator. So do you think there's a lot of growth potential still in that, Mark? Yes, I think we're still in the early days of audiobooks. I think we're going to see this market, uh, certainly on, 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 the, on production numbers, it's going to go exponential for the next couple of years, see a lot more production. The indie authors are, are going to be producing a lot more books. But that production will be gated you know, by the fact that the production costs are really high. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, the, when we look back, you know, 10 years ago, one of the greatest impacts, I think, of self-publishing platforms like, you know, Amazon's KDP and Smashwords is that we eliminated the cost of publishing. We made the printing press free and available to everyone. There was no cost to, to produce an ebook and to distribute an ebook. Costs for um, audiobooks are really expensive. You know, you're looking at, you know, two to $500 an hour for production. You know, most writers are, are not, you know, swimming in money. That's a, that's a huge investment to make for a writer to have to put, you know, thousands of dollars into a book um, with, with no guarantee that, that the sales will be recouped. So we're going to see that market get, grow on the indie side, but uh, the, 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 the title count production isn't going to, to, to match ebook production because ebook production is, 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 is free and cheap. We're going to see the audiobook market get crowded very quickly. Uh, because certainly the publishers are excited about audiobooks. Uh, the authors are excited about audiobooks. Um, we're going to see more competition for audio rights. We've already seen that. Uh, Amazon is, is bidding very aggressively uh, against publishers for audio rights. Um, we've you know, spoken with agents who, who um, are you know, pleasantly surprised by that. They're, they like that there's that competition. Um, they but love it. They, they love it. They they love to do these exciting deals, but at the same time, you know, there's some, you know, I I think that the the industry is is potentially setting up for a train wreck here on on audiobooks, because you've got basically one player that has monopolistic control over the audiobook market, and uh, what they pay publishers is just horrid. You know, when you look at the percentage that publishers are earning on the list price, they've created this artificial environment where audiobook prices are astronomically high, at least the list price, yet that this one single retailer controls the price and is paying uh, publishers a fraction of what they would earn on a percentage basis of for, you know, print and digital. And, and um, that, 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 that sets up a... a pretty difficult situation for publishers down the line. It's going to get very crowded and they're not going to have a lot of control over uh, access to customers. One of the things that could potentially ameliorate some of that, Mark, I think, is, is the public library network and the efforts that Overdrive has made. Uh, Overdrive has been a big, uh, made a big push for audio books and, you know, just my own personal experience, I can be just lying in bed at three o'clock in the morning and download an audiobook uh, through the Overdrive um, application called Libby from my library, New York Public Library. 
I mean, do you think that that could have a downward, uh, put some downward pressure on pricing, or is it too too little, too limited? Well, I I love libraries. I, I, I'm excited about the potential for uh, for libraries in the future on on all things digital for ebooks and for audiobooks, uh, but. I don't think libraries alone are going to save the publishers from this problem of, of, of dependence upon limited sales channels. Um, but I, but I, am, I am cautiously optimistic about um, the opportunity for some disruption in the audiobook space. For many years, Apple um, had an exclusive supplier relationship with Audible. That exclusive supplier relationship is over. So I think everyone's waiting to see what Apple does with iTunes and with audiobooks. You know, the rumors say that they're going to do something. Uh, so that that's exciting. It'll be nice to see uh, see authors and publishers gain new sales channels that they have greater control over. Um, you know, we're we're looking you know through our partnership with Findaway on the audiobook side to give more control to authors and publishers over pricing, over distribution, over margins. Um, you know, I think I think that that'll make some some impact. And you know, you, you we've mentioned uh, several times Amazon. Amazon is the one channel, uh, major channel through which uh, Smashwords doesn't distribute. If I have that correct. Um, and, and in general, you've been very vocal in your criticisms of the deleterious effects that Amazon's Kindle Unlimited program has had on authors and their potential earnings. Um, in 2015, in a PW article, you warned traditional publishers, general warning, that Amazon was recruiting hordes of indie authors, content creators, etc., to feed their Kindle Unlimited subscription service to get around the pricing limitations imposed by agency pricing and in general to lower prices. Since that time, their program has grown. So do you see the balance of power shifting over the next five to ten years among Amazon, other retail channels, you know, Walmart, et cetera, traditional publishers and authors? Well, you know, I, I have been, I've been critical of Amazon's uh, strategy for exclusivity. So that's KDP Select is their exclusive option for self-published authors. And Kindle Unlimited is the spawn of, of, of KDP Select. Uh, Kindle Unlimited, is, the, the, the catalog is populated almost entirely by self-published authors. Um, my, my beef with Kindle Unlimited is that authors and publishers who participate in that um, are paid out of a pool, out of a pool that is determined by Amazon after the fact. So retail price doesn't matter. So they're, they're potentially devaluing books here. They're training the world's largest collection of customers, the Amazon customer base, to expect to read and consume books for what feels like free. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to publishers about Kindle Unlimited, they'll say, oh, well, all those books are self-published books, and if you read those books, they're dreck, they're crap. And it's true that most of those books are dreck, but it's also true that the, that Amazon has amassed such a critical uh, mass of uh, of titles that there are thousands of high-quality five-star reading experiences in there, and Amazon does a great job of surfacing them. 
So if you're a reader, if you, if you love books, you have an unlimited supply of books that you can access for what feels like free. So it's devaluing reading, it's devaluing what readers expect to pay for books, and publishers don't recognize this as a threat to them yet, but it's a serious threat to publishers, and it's a serious threat to all the other retail channels upon which the publishers depend. Because if Amazon can offer a unit of reading pleasure, let's say one hour of reading pleasure at a lower cost to consumers than any other retailer or publisher can, um, eventually readers are going to gravitate toward that lower cost, more convenient option. What I guess I don't understand, and maybe you can clarify this for me and for our listeners, is um, if the authors are basically getting screwed or at least having their earnings uh, severely decreased uh, through this, why haven't they revolted? Well, so I wouldn't. So I, 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 I wouldn't characterize it as the authors are being screwed, okay. because from the author perspective, you know, authors want to reach readers, and what Amazon's done here with KDP Select and Kindle Unlimited is they've said, look, if you make your your self-published ebook exclusive to Amazon for a period of three months, then we're going to give you preferential merchandising, preferential visibility. We're going to make your book more desirable than the other author's book. And you'll get to participate in Kindle Unlimited. So the Kindle Unlimited program has been very successful. There are a lot of readers in that program, and authors are earning a lot of money in that program. So from the author perspective, you know, even if they don't like exclusivity, and most authors don't like exclusivity, they, they, they think that they've got no other choice. If they want to reach readers, if they want to put food on their family's table, a lot of authors think that they need to get in bed with Amazon and go exclusive to Amazon. So there's a lot of a resentment in the author community about these exclusivity policies, but there's also appreciation that Amazon is putting their books in front of a lot of readers and helping them build their readership. So when they're in the subscription uh, program, and you mentioned they get a few, uh, some percent of a penny per page read or something like that, they, they can still, that can add up to a lot? Yeah, that can add up to a lot of money. It's about a half cent, a little less than a half cent per page. Okay. And so, you know, if you look at, like, let's say you've written a, a 200 page book that you would normally sell as an ebook for $3.99. You know, that $3.99 ebook is going to earn you about $2.50 if you sell a single copy. Uh, you know, a 200-page book where you're earning 0.4 of a penny per page is going to earn you maybe 80 cents, if I got the math right. So 80 cents versus $2.50. You see the author's earning a lot less for that book, but they're also getting access. They're also getting access uh, to those readers, and they're making money that they wouldn't have made otherwise. Got that. But you see the devaluation. Sure, and, and so, but one of the things about ebooks that's so different from print books uh, is that ebooks seem to have a a long tail and, and don't really, you know, the rule of that uh, you know you have to sell make the majority of your sales in the first three months from the pub date doesn't really apply to ebooks the way it applies to print books from uh, from my experience. Uh, so. You know, if they have three months of exclusivity with Amazon, don't they still have a lot of uh, opportunity after that three months to sell their books everywhere? 
Well, because ebooks are immortal and will never go out of print, they do have a longer tail. But even for most ebooks, the majority of those sales occur in the first few weeks of the book's release. Typically, that's what we see. Okay. You know, every once in a while, you know, we'll see authors that are selling poorly for months and months and months, and then they have a major breakout and become a New York Times bestseller. That happens as well. But, you know, those first few months are the most critical months. Those are the most lucrative months for an author's sales. And, you know, what a lot of authors do is they'll say, look, I'll, I'll, I'll launch my book at, at Amazon, exclusively at Amazon for f three months, and, and they'll feel like they're not giving up very much. But they are giving up something. They're giving up the opportunity to sell at these other stores, build platforms at these other stores. And, you know, of equal concern, they're starving the other pure play ebook retailers of the critical inventory that they need to serve their customers. So we're slowly seeing the other retailers, uh, you know, bled to death by uh, not having access to this this, this catalog. Mm -hmm. When you look at Amazon's catalog of ebooks, probably 20, 25% of their ebooks are exclusive to Amazon at any one point in time. So there are millions of readers who want to read those books and can't find those books at other retailers. So those readers are being forced to shift their buying habits over to a single retailer. So it's like a funnel. So we, we talked about audiobooks, uh, Mark, and how that's right now the fastest growing sec uh, segment of our industry in terms of format. Um, as you'd mentioned, uh, Amazon recently introduced the Audible Romance subscription service which threatens to have potentially similar effects on the audiobook market for indie publishers. Do, do you feel that way? Do you feel that that's a threat? Well, you know, it, it's... Yeah, so what Amazon did is they, they offered this this new um, subscription of for, for romance audiobooks. And they got a lot of authors to sign on. And these authors gave the seven years' rights to Amazon. And these authors had no guarantee of what they were going to be paid. They didn't know how they were going to be paid. They knew that it was going to be a pool-based model similar to Kindle Unlimited. When Amazon first announced what those authors, those first participating authors were going to make, the authors were horrified. You know, it was like, you know, pennies per recorded hour. And and a lot of the authors wanted out of that system. But, but authors shouldn't be surprised that Amazon did that because Amazon's business model is entirely dependent upon commoditizing everything that it sells. You know, when you look at what drives consumers, it's price, selection, and convenience. If Amazon always has the lowest price on all of the different products, if they can offer more hours of reading pleasure, more hours of listening pleasure than uh, any other uh, retailer, any other source, then Amazon wins. And so caught in the middle of this vice are the authors. The authors are the producers of these products. The authors are seeing their work commoditized. And, you know, unlike a manufacturer of mousetraps, you can't outsource your manufacturing to China if you're a writer. You can't outsource your writing. Right. And it's putting writers in a really tough position. But I think what Amazon realizes is that most writers will continue to write even if they're not paid. So we, we've, we've looked at Amazon and some of the threats uh, and Amazon, obviously, in terms of it, the size of enterprise is much larger than any one single publisher by at least tenfold. Uh, the only one who uh, has really the financial strength to fight them on an even plane is probably Apple, right? Uh, Apple or Google. 
or, or Google. Okay. So based on, uh, on that, uh, is there hope, Mark? Can, 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 there, can we get back to a more of an equilibrium type state uh, where, you know, where there isn't just one monopolistic player controlling you know, 75% of the market or whatever it is? Um, you know, look, I, I'm normally an optimistic person. But right now, um, I'm extremely concerned about the direction of the industry. What we've seen is that the retailers have proven themselves incapable of com competing against Amazon. And they've failed to date to compete against Amazon. And the authors are upset about that. The authors blame the retailers. The authors blame Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Apple for failing to compete against Amazon, failing to give them uh, a viable option to exclusivity. Part of the challenge here is that um, Amazon, Amazon is not run for profitability. They run their business at break even, which means they're not, they don't need to make a profit on books. They don't need to make a profit on anything. As long as they're slightly cash flow positive, uh, they can operate forever. And so they're taking all of, all of that cash flow, reinvesting it back into the business. So they're not paying income taxes. When you pay income taxes, uh, you know, if you're earning billions of dollars, you have to pay taxes on that. Once that money goes to the government, you don't get it back. You can't reinvest it in your business. Meanwhile, you've got Apple, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, they're running their business for profitability. Mm -hmm. um, and, and specifically, Barnes & Noble and Kobo, if they can't make money in the book business, they can't continue investing in their business. They can't stay in business. But Amazon can operate their book business at break even. So this gives Amazon a tremendous competitive advantage. It means that Amazon's got more control over the cost of goods sold. Well, Kobo is an interesting case. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, they were acquired a few years ago by the Japanese uh, giant, uh, internet giant, Rakuten. And so they've got a, 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 a parent company that can certainly compete against Amazon on somewhat of a equal basis. They, the same company, Rakuten, as you know, also acquired Overdrive. So between the two of them, there are two Amazon competitors in very different se sectors that, you know, at least for me, it's a ray of light. It's a ray of light. It's a ray of hope, but it's not enough. No, it's Be not because, enough. Because, you know, ultimately, if, if Rakuten can't see profit from these divisions, they're going to close those divisions down. You know, for Amazon, a reader is worth more to Amazon than just measured by the reader's purchases of books because Amazon's looking for a, a comprehensive, lifelong relationship with that reader. That reader is a consumer. They, they can sell diapers to that reader. They can sell nuclear reactors to that reader. They can sell <laughs> everything to that reader. They can become the sole retail source for that reader. And they do. And Amazon does a brilliant job of that. So, I, you know, I think Amazon deserves a lot of kudos for the smarts. They are outsmarting the, the entire book industry. The book industry Everyone in the industry, uh, you know, when we look back over the last 10 years, how the industry's responded to Amazon, the industry is like deer in the headlights. And that, that includes everyone. That, in, that includes me as well. You know, we, we as an industry have failed to um, mount a, an effective response to that. Well, I think that Smashwords in its own way has actually been very successful and the fact that you've been profitable since 2010 sort of proves that point, if you will, and you've published uh, now 475,000 plus, plus books. 
in in just 10 years. Uh, this is your 10-year anniversary, 2018. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are you going to do for an encore? What's next? So we're, we're looking to make a big move in the next 12 months. We've got some exciting plans. Um, we're putting in place, you know, what I think of as Smashwords 2.0. Is there anything more you can say about that, or is uh, well, we're know, gonna have to sign an NDA? <laughs> oh, the only people that know the story of Smashwords 2.0 are a few Smashwords employees. Um, but you know what? What I can say is that we were founded as an author-centric company. I'm an author. I, I created Smashwords out of my own experience. You know, trying to get a book published that my wife and I wrote. Uh, Everything that we do at Smashwords is about the author. We put authors first. And so what you're going to see us do is put authors first, as we always have. And we're listening to authors, and we know what authors want. And we've got a lot of ideas of what authors need that they don't even know that they need yet. Um, so when I, when I look at uh, the future of publishing, I continue to see it as uh, the, the power shifting uh, more and more to authors and and so we'll be building author-centric solutions that 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 help readers get closer to their help help authors get closer to their readers well i'm sure i'm not the only one to say that we'll very much be looking forward to i'm looking Washington. forward to it too and uh, so last question before we close, and this has been great. So what, what advice would you give for a young person just starting out in our industry today? This is a wonderful industry. Uh, the people in publishing are amazing. And one thing that you'll learn as you get in this industry, whether you are a writer, a self-publisher, a cover designer, a formatter, or if you want to get a job at a traditional publisher, if you want to work in marketing or editing, there are a lot of really exciting jobs in this industry. But the one thing to, to understand is that this is a people business and it's a relationship business. Uh, you, If you join this industry, you're going to be surrounded by people who love books just like you. Um, this is not a get-rich-quick industry. It's a it's a very difficult industry, but you know we're a community, and the publishing industry is an awesome community to be part of. Um, if you know if you're just getting started out, um, what you're going to find is that y your success in this industry will be based on the relationships that you create, because uh, relationships open up doors and create opportunity, and people in the industry are very supportive of, of fellow industry members. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a great industry to be in, uh, and and you know, I'd love to see more people get in it. Well, I think that's great advice, Mark, and I think that uh, this has been a very lively and illuminating discussion, and we are grateful to you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Future of Publishing podcast. Do not hesitate to subscribe to the series. If you like this podcast, you can say it with stars, preferably five, and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including the pre-installed podcast app on iPhones and on Android podcast apps. You can follow us on our webpage, www.nordcompo.com podcast, where you can sign up for our newsletter and check out the full schedule of upcoming podcasts. I'm Larry Bennett. Hope you will catch our next podcast.